and welcome to City Breaks Bath, Episode 8, Museums and Galleries. You might be thinking that we've already been to quite a few museums, and you'd be right. We went to the Roman Baths, for example, and to the Museum of Bath Architecture, and in the same episode as that, also to the Number One Royal Crescent Museum, to find out more about the inside of Georgian buildings. And last, but certainly not least, we went to the Jane Austen Centre. However, there are a clutch of other museums and art galleries which won't be fitting quite so neatly into the episodes that I've planned and so I decided to collect them all together here and give them their own space. Actually, in total, five different places, three museums, two galleries. The museums are the Bath Museum of Fashion, which is, I think, quite well known, even in other parts of the country, and two smaller museums, with very niche interests, but both of which can tell us quite a lot more about Bath. That would be the William Herschel Museum, dedicated to the 18th century astronomer who made one of the most amazing discoveries in astronomy ever, right here in Bath, and the Bath Postal Museum, which will not only tell you about developments in Bath, again in the 18th century, which revolutionised the postal system across England, but will also help explain where the money came from, and indeed where the stone came from, to build the streets and squares for which Bath is so well known. So the ones we covered in the fifth episode, Queen Square, the Royal Circus, the Royal Crescent, et al. And that leaves then two galleries, one confusingly called the Holborn Museum. I hope they don't take issue with me calling them a gallery, but it's certainly true that paintings and other objects of art are among the main displays. And finally then, the Victoria Art Gallery, definitely an art gallery. So I'm grouping together five institutions which could probably each have their own episode, if only time allowed. So just a little flavour of each one, focusing particularly on what you can learn about Bath from them. Hopefully just the right level of information to help you decide which ones you'd like to visit yourself when you're actually in Bath. And so, without further ado, Let's get going to the Fashion Museum, which, quite apart from the over 100,000 objects which it has in its collection, is worth visiting just for the location. It's the basement floor of the Assembly Rooms. So when you go there, you'll be visiting a building which Jane Austen herself, and indeed many of her characters, went to for entertainments, card playing, a concert or a dance. At least one of the rooms in use in her time is still in use today. It's been repurposed as a cafe and tea room on the ground floor. But in fact, to get to the fashion museum, you need to go down into the basement, where you can enjoy the part of the collection which is on display and which comprises all sorts of things, starting perhaps with a pair of decorated gloves from Shakespeare's time, right up to leading designers of today. I think for many people it possibly is the clothes from Jane Austen's era that they really want to see. And so I started my research by finding out a little bit about some of those. Actually, at the time of recording, the museum itself is closed because of the COVID pandemic, but you can see a good range of what they have on display online by going to their website, www.fashionmuseum.co.uk. And in the section entitled History of Fashion in a 100 Objects, you'll find both of these early 19th century garments that I'm going to describe. One look at which I think you'll find 
takes you straight back to Jane Austen's era. They're both quite demure cotton gowns, little puff sleeves, pale in colour. And when I asked the museum staff to tell me a little bit more about them, this is what they said. So, the first one is described as a white cutwork embroidered cotton gown, which is, quote, quintessential Regency. It dates from about 1815, the year of Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo, and it instantly conjures up Jane Austen's heroines. It also illustrates an important Regency fashion item, the Spencer, a fashionable short jacket worn for warmth. Generally, a Spencer was made of wool or silk, and sometimes in a bright colour. In 1808, Jane Austen wrote, quote, My Kersimere Spencer is quite the comfort of our evening walks. Kersimere, said the helpful lady at the museum, was a type of woollen cloth. And the second dress from a similar era, about 1816, they think, is described as a white cotton frock woven with all over red and blue sprig. Actually, the pattern's quite understated. And the dress is very much of its time. As they explained to me, quote, Long sleeves were fashionable for evening wear at this time, here with a little puff shape at the top. The effect is very demure and simple, almost childlike, and very pride and prejudice. They also pointed out to me that although Jane Austen wrote about clothes quite often in letters to her sister, describing something she'd worn or perhaps a new bonnet that she'd bought, in her novels only the silliest of characters speak publicly about fashion. Think Mrs. Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, for example. But I absolutely wouldn't like to leave the impression that it's all 18th century, because there's a whole range of other things. The oldest garment in the collection, for example, is an Elizabethan man's shirt, made of soft cream linen and decorated with blackwork embroidery, thought to date from about 1580, possibly 1590. As an example of something much more modern, there are two dresses donated by Dame Margot Fontaine, the ballet dancer, one of which was an Yves Saint Laurent sleeveless cream woolen shift dress, quite unusual because although it is a cream shift dress, it has a black cross design across the whole garment. As a contrast to that dress, which must have exuded modernity when Dame Margot first wore it, she also donated a Christian Dior blue sequined evening dress, full length, blue tulle, just stunning. And something else which the museum does, which gives a very interesting history of the development of fashion, is their Dress of the Year collection. So every year since 1963, a fashion journalist or someone else of importance in the world of fashion has been invited to choose one outfit which they think represents that year. And you can see them all on display right here. The very first outfit in 1963, was a Mary Quant cream woolen dress, worn with a cream chiffon blouse and a trilby hat. By 1967, they'd gone quite psychedelic, as befitting the 60s, and the garment chosen was an orange and pink trouser suit. There are wedding dresses, one from 1975 and another from 1995. There's a lady's pinstriped trouser suit from 1992 representing the yuppie era. And a more recent edition in 2017 was a slogan t-shirt. So alongside a black tulle skirt and a black wool jacket went this t-shirt with the slogan right across the chest, we should all be feminists.
So it's a museum which covers fashion from many past eras, but which also makes sure that it's staying current and indeed looking into the future. A fascinating visit then for anybody with an interest in fashion and also a nice marker right in the centre of Bath reminding us that the city has been a centre of fashion for centuries and perhaps its heyday was in Georgian times when it rivalled London in terms of the outfits that were seen being worn and in the many, many different sorts of clothing shops in the city where the wealthy, perhaps down for the season, could spend their money and keep up to date. So I'd like to take a moment just to think a little bit about that. We know that in the late 18th century Bath, there were shopkeepers in places like Milsom Street who claimed to have come from London to have opened a second branch here. There was a milliner, for example, Mrs Goldsmith, who had a shop in Milsom Street here in Bath and a second one in London's old Bond Street. No railway, of course, in those days, so popping up to London wasn't that simple. And so Bath shopkeepers made a point of importing London goods in bulk to keep their wealthy customers happy. Boxes of kid gloves, perhaps, or dresses which claim to have been modelled on the latest from Paris. And here are the authors of A Traveller's History of Bath, Richard and Sheila Tame, describing some of the incredible array of goods which were sold here. Quote, Purveyors of fashionable clothing often sold accessories, such as umbrellas, canes, whips and spurs, and most notably, an extensive selection of exotically named products, allegedly beneficial to health or beauty. Alfred's excellent composition for removing superfluous hair from the face and arms, royal Prussian paste to prevent skin being chapped, pimpled, sunburnt, freckled, etc. And, my personal favourite, Donna Maria's beautifier and restorer of relaxed bosoms. They explain whereabouts in Bath you found all these fashionable shops. Milsom Street, Stall Street, Gay Street, North Parade. All of this information very much giving the idea that Bath was a place where fashions were kept, money was spent and people were keen to have the very latest. We've talked in a previous episode about the fact that 19th century Bath went into a sort of genteel decline. People started visiting Brighton and Weymouth for their cures, but perhaps surprisingly there didn't seem to be a corresponding decline in the idea of Bath as a centre of fashion and shopping. And Richard and Sheila Thames quote an observer writing in 1887 who makes this very clear. Quote, the shops of Bath are a revelation to the stranger and give token of the fact that Bath is still the centre of fashion and luxury not only to the fashionable visitors, but to the whole of the west of England. Kings of Milsom Street would do credit to the Rue de Rivoli, or Regent Street, for sustained splendour and gorgeous raiment. And so it does seem fitting that the Fashion Museum is sited right here in Bath. Perhaps less obvious, until you know the story, is why is there a museum dedicated to the astronomer William Herschel here in Bath? Well, the reason is really that he lived here in Bath during the period when he made his most well-known discovery, that of a whole new planet, no less. He lived at 19 New King Street, and there today is the museum dedicated to him and to his work. He was an experimenter, a designer of telescopes. Sir Patrick Moore, no less, called him, quote, the greatest telescope maker of his day. 
his day, at least the time when he lived in Bath, being the 1780s. And such was the optical quality of the telescopes which he designed while he lived in Bath, that people could suddenly see much further into space than they'd ever been able to before. He designed some seven-foot telescopes, which he sold to other people, and then he began to think a bit bigger, building 10, 20 and even 25-foot telescopes. All of this in a workshop which he created at New King Street, in a room next to the kitchen, where he had a furnace and a smelting oven, stockpiles of horse dung, which apparently were needed to make the moulds, and where one day all of this combined with almost catastrophic results. He and his brother were doing one of their experiments. In fact, they were pouring, or trying to pour, 538 pounds of speculum metal into a mould made of horse dung. This does all sound rather unlikely, but the place where I obtained this information assured me, in fact, that this method of casting is still used today to make church bells. Surely not with actual horse dung. Anyway, what we do know from the diary of William's sister Caroline, who lived in the house too, was that the effects were both unforeseen and rather dramatic. She wrote, Both my brothers were obliged to run out of opposite doors, for the stone flooring flew about in all directions as high as the ceiling. If you go to visit and you go into the workshop and look at the flagstones, you can still see signs of this event. So that was the second most exciting thing that happened here, the most exciting being on the evening of the 13th of March in 1781, when William Herschel was out in his garden round about 10 o'clock at night, using his homemade telescope, one of the seven-foot ones, and when he discovered the planet which we call today Uranus. This being in fact the first planet to be discovered since the days of ancient Greece, right here in the back garden in Bath. A discovery which, at a stroke, doubled the size of the known universe. Herschel wanted to call the new planet Georgium Sidus in honour of King George III, who was the king at the time and also his patron and sponsor. But he was overruled. It was decided in the end to follow the tradition of naming new planets and new celestial objects generally after classical gods. If you go to visit the museum, you can see his workshop. You can see some of his telescopes and globes and bits and pieces. You can go out into the garden and stand exactly where Herschel himself stood when he made his discovery. Sometimes the museum organises stargazing sessions. More details about that on their website. And another exhibit which is very interesting is the visitor's book, which actually dates from when Herschel and his sister moved to Windsor. But it does show how famous he went on to become, even in his own time, because the list of people who've signed the book included the king, other members of the court. Often they came for the privilege of looking through one of his telescopes and all kinds of other scientists and writers and politicians, even some foreign royalty. Names in the book include Lord Byron, Joseph Haydn, and Fanny Burney. There's a music room too, because Herschel started life as a musician, one who earned his living by tutoring students. Although, in fact, I think right from the beginning, astronomy was his passion. One of his students who came to him for singing lessons, one John Bernard, remembered that, quote, his lodgings resembled an astronomer's much more than a musician's, being heaped up with globes, maps, telescopes, reflectors, etc., under which the piano was hid. 
in the end he did manage to make a living from astronomy, was in fact appointed as the court astronomer, hence his move to Windsor, I think, which brought him a pension of £200 a year and meant that he was able to give up what he had called the intolerable waste of time which he'd put into performing and teaching music. I think he swapped them over, really. Astronomy became his profession and music just a pastime. He went on to identify 848 new stars. He wrote some 70 papers for the Royal Society. He discovered the existence of infrared light rays. And his fame spread far and wide. He was given honours from foreign countries, France, Germany, Sweden, America. And scientists came from many countries to visit him and to find out more about his work. So a truly illustrious career in science, which began with that rather ill-fated explosion in New King Street, here in Bath. And another small museum in Bath, which can tell you lots about the history of the city and about the influence of something which began here and then spread across the country, is the Bath Postal Museum. A quote from its website tells us they deal with everything from clay mail to email. Clay mail being a reference to messages they've got on tablets of clay from ancient Egypt. And here you can learn the history of communication from those days right up until the 21st century. More specifically, it's also, to quote from the website, the story of how Bath played a vital role in establishing a postal system across England and then throughout the empire, and of how the money made on this venture by Ralph Allen was invested back in the city of Bath and financed many of its finest buildings and institutions. So you may remember mention made of Ralph Allen in the episode on the Georgian architecture of Bath, because he it was who financed much of it, working very closely with the architects, the elder and younger John Wood. So Ralph Allen came from Cornwall, arrived in Bath to be the assistant to the postmistress, was one of those people who just kept getting promoted. Soon he was the youngest postmaster in England, earning a princely £25 a year, and not content with just running what was there, he established a whole new system. It was called the cross-post system, and it was really about, firstly, getting mail quickly from Bath to London and back, and then, once the system was up and running, extending it across the country. So he set up a series of crossroads linking, for example, Exeter and Chester and Oxford and lots of other places, so that gradually, mail that was crossing the country didn't need to go via London first. This sped everything up, proved very popular and made him loads of money, which meant he could move on to his next project, buying some stone quarries at Coombe Down, just outside Bath, thinking of the idea of having a railway built to carry the blocks from the downs down into the city so it could be used for the exciting new projects that he and the architects were planning, Queen Square, the Royal Crescent, etc. This earned him another fortune, and he spent some of it on building his lovely house, Prior Park, up on Whitcomb Hill and overlooking the city, described by one of his contemporaries, one Philip Thickness, who possibly was slightly jealous as, quote, a noble seat which sees all Bath, which was built, probably, for all Bath to see. So you can learn about Ralph Allen's life, you can learn about the fact that he was also a philanthropist, put money into Bath Hospital, for example, and into other societies and charities, such that the novelist Henry Fielding described him as, 
Quote, a munificent patron, a warm and firm friend, hospitable to his neighbours, charitable to the poor, and benevolent to all mankind. So that's one aspect then of the museum, Ralph Allen's life and also his new postal service, and how it spread from Bath to the rest of the country. But there's also a more general exhibition on the history of the post and of message sending in general. And that's where you'll see the clay tablets from ancient Egypt, as well as lots more information on post and message sending in Roman Britain in medieval times and on through all the various periods of history until the modern day. It's quite a child-friendly museum, so you can do things like perforate your own sheet of stamps or dress up as a Georgian postman and maybe find out more about life on a Victorian mail coach. An altogether interesting little museum which tells you the story of Bath in a way quite unique and not to be found in any of the city's other museums. For those with artistic interests, there are two museums in Bath vying for your attention, the Holborn Museum and the Victoria Art Gallery. I'm going to start with the first one because it's older. It is in fact Bath's first public art gallery. Founded originally on the collection of one person, Sir William Holborn, who does sound quite an interesting sort of man. We know that when he was only 11, he was at the Battle of Trafalgar, fighting on one of the ships. Much of the biography in between that and becoming famous seems a little hazy. We do know that he became a baron, and that throughout his life, one of his major interests was being what he referred to as a collector of distinction. In fact, he collected so many things that by the 1860s, he was lending them to national exhibitions. The collection was originally housed elsewhere in Bath, but it moved here to the building now known as the Holborn Museum in 1916. And it's one of those museums with really a great variety of exhibits on display. There are bronzes, there are paintings, there's porcelain, there are embroideries. I think, though, it's best known for its 18th century paintings, particularly the portraits. Bath was a place which attracted portrait painters, lots of wealthy Visitors from London down here for the season, perhaps with a little time to spare, they could sit for their portraits and provide a good living for somebody like, for example, William Hoare, who arrived in Bath in the 1730s and did manage to make a good living. Portraits of his, which are here, include one of the daughter of a wealthy landowner and MP, one Lettuce Mary Banks, resplendent in her blue satin dress with lace trimming and a fringed bonnet. A lot of people asked for family portraits. There's one here of the Pitt family, John and Marcia Pitt, from Dorset, plus their young son, all posing in nice bright colours. She in a yellow frock, he in red trousers and waistcoat, possibly velvet, and definitely a portrait which hints a little at their status, which is no doubt what they had in mind when they commissioned it. Perhaps the best-known painter who worked in Bath was Thomas Gainsborough, and there are several of his portraits here. There's an interesting one entitled The Byam Family, which was originally of a newly married couple, but which was then taken back three or four years later, after their daughter had been born, so that she could be painted in. Apparently this was quite common practice. I suppose even for the wealthy, having a portrait done was quite an expense, and perhaps they decided to paint in the additions rather than having a whole new thing commissioned. There's a full-length portrait by Gainsborough of the Bristol MP, Robert Craggs Nugent, 
which was actually the first painting of his that went to a major exhibition and which helped to make his reputation. I enjoyed the description of Mr Nugent, which is in the catalogue. A contemporary apparently described him as, quote, a jovial and voluptuous Irishman. And then the author of the guidebook entry goes on to explain that he'd arrived from Ireland with not much, married a succession of rich widows, become an MP, one in fact known for his witty speeches, and eventually became Earl Nugent. And sure enough, the portrait does capture a man who looks relaxed, but yes, really rather pleased with himself. And a third Gainsborough portrait here is the one of Louisa Scrine, otherwise known as Lady Clargis. Painted at the age of 18, apparently just a year after she married, with a harp. She was apparently a very good singer and harpist, a patron of other musicians. And it's quite a calm, reflective sort of picture. Spoilt a little, perhaps, when you find out from the guidebook that Fanny Burney, a contemporary of hers, described her as, quote, sportive, heedless, happy, and when she chose it, captivating. Another little subsection in the collection is a set of 18th century paintings with theatrical connotations. There's one, for example, of the well-known actor David Garrick and his wife on stage in a play called Venice Preserved. And there's another one of a jester taking part in Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. In addition to all the paintings, there's a large collection of silverware and porcelain, again mainly from the 18th century, silver tureens and sauce boats and condiment sets, and quite a lot of porcelain reflecting the new practice of drinking tea and coffee and chocolate. Delicate pieces for the table, often with flower patterns and gold rims, and giving an insight into this new ritual, which was becoming so much a part of polite society. It's interesting to note that the tea was drunk from bowls. I think in Jane Austen it's sometimes referred to as a dish of tea, whereas a coffee cup would have a handle, and a cup for chocolate usually had two handles and a lid. To me, perhaps the things of greatest interest were the things that really gave something away about Bath itself. So there are some pretty aquatints of the building formerly known as the Sydney Hotel, i.e. now the Holborn Museum itself, and of Sydney Gardens, which today still lead out from the back of the museum. There's an exquisite little portrait of Beau Nash on copper, a miniature portrait, I think something like five centimetres by four. Quite a serious face, but a gold-embroidered jacket and a fancy shirt and collar to go with it. A little hint of him being a man who knew how to enjoy life. There's also a portrait of Henrietta Laura Pulteney, the young heiress after whom so many of the surrounding roads are named, Henrietta Street, Laura Place, Pulteney Street, painted in about 1777 and showing her wearing the clothes of the day, a muslin frock, a little white cap, and, because she was from a very well-off family, also an overdress of embroidered gauze. She's shown at the age of about 10 or 11, a very innocent picture of her dancing through a wood, picking some flowers, and giving nothing away of the fact that she became a very able businesswoman, using money inherited from her mother, and working alongside her father to extend this side of Bath, and eventually becoming known as, quote, the richest spinster in Europe. And lastly, I did enjoy the souvenirs of Bath, such as, for example, from the mid-18th century, a souvenir fan with an engraving of Bath on it, 
something you could take home to show everybody that you'd been at Bath that season. And then from a little later, about 1800, some souvenir patch boxes with printed views of Bath on them. I saw one of the Abbey, one of South Parade, and one which was engraved, a trifle from Bath. And last, but certainly not least, the Victoria Art Gallery. Centrally located, quite near the Abbey, near the Guildhall, named, of course, after Queen Victoria, because it was built to mark her 60 years on the throne. Again, definitely a mix of things to see, paintings, sculpture, glassware, decorative arts. There's a permanent collection up on the first floor, exploring 500 years of European art. A collection ranging, as they tell us themselves on the website, from, quote, our beautiful jewel-like adoration of the Magi from the 1480s to Silence by Howard Hodgkin, painted in the early years of this century. And there's also a lower gallery downstairs, where the focus is much more on the contemporary. So again, far too much to explain in detail, so I've decided to pick out just three aspects to talk about. And the first one, actually in common with the Hogan Museum, is the idea of portrait painting, because that really was the thing in Bath in the 18th century. The wealthy visitors who flocked here for the spa were often keen to have their portrait painted, which meant that some of the best portrait painters were keen to come to Bath. And top of the whole lot, and certainly the best-known one today, remains Thomas Gainsborough. And perhaps I can pause a moment for a very mini-biography of him. He wasn't originally a West Country man. He was born in Suffolk. He did his artistic training in London, and having spent six months in Bath trying out the market and realising that, yes, here was a place where he could make his living from painting, he moved down and eventually spent 16 years in the city, doing what he himself once called, quote, picking pockets in the portrait way. He painted not just portraits, but also landscapes. And there is an idea that actually he preferred the latter, but unfortunately it was the former, the portraits, which sold and allowed him to continue making his living. In one of his letters, he apparently referred to portrait painting as the cursed face business. But the fact remains that while he was here, it was the portraits which sold and not the landscapes, even though they are much more popular today. It wasn't long before he began to do really rather well. Some of his paintings became quite well known. So his painting of the Bristol MP, Robert Craggs Nugent, for example, was exhibited by the Society of Artists in London. Other clients included Georgiana, future Duchess of Devonshire, but probably more lucratively, he was very popular with his other slightly more ordinary Bath clients because he was a witty conversationalist, he made the sittings enjoyable, and so there was always a queue of people waiting to have their picture painted by him. All of this meant that eventually he was able to move to 17 Royal Circus and to raise his prices. When he first arrived in Bath, he was charging five guineas for a head and shoulders portrait and that went up to 20, whereas his charges for a half-length portrait increased from 8 guineas to 40. He was one of the 40 founding members of the Royal Academy in London, and in fact, in the end, the pull of London was too strong, and he moved back there in 1774, leaving Bath behind and setting up on Pall Mall, another really rather exclusive address. Here in the Victoria Gallery, you can see Gainsborough's portrait of Thomas Rumbolt, a successful merchant with the East India Company, painted around 1770. Another 18th century portrait painter who was popular in Bath was one Johann Zoffany. He too had London connections, 
worked for the royal family, and was deemed to be particularly good at painting children. And here in the Victoria Gallery, you can see his painting of one Sophia Dumergue, who was aged about 12 in 1780 or thereabouts when the painting was done. Her rather sophisticated clothes, a headdress, a pair of kid gloves, show that she's on the brink of adulthood, but he's included too a kitten, giving the idea that actually she hasn't totally left childhood behind. Sophia's father, one Charles Dumergue, who earned his living as the royal dentist, was also painted by Zoffany, and that picture too hangs here. The staff at the Victoria Gallery explained to me that in fact in Bath in the late 1700s there were many different portrait artists all vying for trade. There was, for example, Thomas Lawrence, and two pictures that they have by him include a portrait of Catherine Lindsay and a self-portrait drawn when he was only 14, and which the staff described as being really self-assured. Then there was William Hall, mentioned I think in connection with the Hoburn Museum as well, and at the Victoria Gallery they have what they describe as an exquisite self-portrait in pastel by him, and then slightly younger than Gainsborough, but quite keen to perhaps fill his shoes, was someone called Thomas Barker. This is what the gallery staff had to say about him. He was, quote, a local boy who was talent-spotted and funded by a local businessman. One of my favourite paintings in the gallery is a self-portrait by him as a young man, with his benefactor standing behind him, painted just before Barker embarked on a grand tour of Italy. So, portraits then. Another question I was keen to ask was, is there anything from the Jane Austen era in the gallery? And I was advised that a good way to research that would in fact be to go online. If you Google Victoria Gallery and Jane Austen exhibition, I think you'll find the relevant section, which is all about a special exhibition they held a few years ago, where every single artwork comes from their collection, although most of them are not currently on display. And you can click on any one of the eight categories of the exhibition and find your way to pictures which are relevant. So the categories include things like Jane Austen in Bath, Entertainment, Medicine, Northanger Abbey, Persuasion and Romance. And finally, I was interested in pictures of Bath itself. I spotted a picture by John Nash called The Canal Bridge in Sydney Gardens, which was painted in the mid-1920s and manages to show all at once both the beautiful, elegant park which is Sydney Gardens which had been a commercial pleasure garden for decades, and also the reference to the Industrial Revolution, which is the Kennet and Avon Canal, dug into the gardens at the turn of the 19th century. The comment on the museum's website describes the picture as follows. Although the canal changed the character of the gardens, Nash shows in this painting how it in fact adds to their picturesque beauty. Indeed, the whole atmosphere of the picture is quiet, subdued and understated, there is a sense of man and nature in harmony. In fact, the gallery has another five paintings by Nash of Bath, though those are not usually on display, but they tell me they have paintings by other artists, pictures of Bath from a similar period, such as, for example, some by Walter Sickert. So, you may wish to look round the gallery simply for everything it has on offer, the full range, but if what you want to do is increase your knowledge of Bath in various ways, then it can certainly do that for you too. And that it has in common with the other four museums mentioned on the podcast. So I hope between them they give you a little more information about the city and a few ideas for a morning or afternoon out if you are visiting. 
And that brings me to the end of what I wanted to say about the museums and thinking ahead to next week where I'm going to call the episode Parks and Walks. We'll go back in time to some of the parks that were features of particular eras, so the Georgian Pleasure Garden that was Sydney Gardens, for example, or the Victorian Splendour that is Victoria Park. And the section on walks can also refer back to the time when a little promenade in Bath was one of the things to do during the season, but also come right up to date with one or two suggestions for city centre walks that you might enjoy, and one or two more for slightly longer outside-the-city ideas. One which will take you along the canal out of the city, and another which will take you up and out of the city and then all round it. A six-mile adventure with lots to see and lovely views, known as the Bath Skyline Walk. So please do join me for that, and for the meanwhile, thank you very much for your kind attention in listening, and goodbye.